Our reading today is taken from Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 28. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. This is the word of God. The words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Dad, said the voice at the top of the stairs, Dad, I can't sleep. Dad was babysitting so that Mum could have a night out with her friends and he had just settled down to watch a football match on the TV. Just go back to bed, close your eyes and you'll be asleep in no time, he shouted reassuringly. But Dad, I'm scared, said the little voice. No need to be, replied Dad. Remember I told you that God is always close to you and will look after you. I know that, Dad, came the answer. But I need a God with skin on. <laughs> and so do most of us need a God with skin on. Because trying to make sense of a God who inhabits the vast expanses of space, 
who is totally invisible and silent and who often seems more noticeable by his absence than his presence is more than most of us can cope with. As one man put it, what? Me have a relationship with God? I'd sooner think of drinking down the Milky Way or shaking hands with the stars. Such a God is too remote, too abstract, too unreal. But what about a God with skin on? That is what Christians have always said about Jesus Christ. He is the human face of God. He brought God down to earth, down to our level, right into the middle of human life. He was and is God with skin on. And that makes the idea of relating to God so much easier and so much more accessible. And the way that Paul illustrates this in Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, is to say that the Son is the image of the invisible God. And what Paul is referring to there is the image that you will find on a coin. And it's a very powerful illustration. Because you think about it. How many of us see the Queen face to face? Not very often, perhaps never in our lifetime. But if we pick up a coin, we can see her image there. Now go back to the first century. No television, no newspapers, no ability to communicate photographs of the emperor in Rome. So you're living in Palestine. You're miles and miles away from Rome and the, and the emperor. It's highly unlikely he'll ever come your way or pass you in your town or city. And so he's invisible. He's in charge. He's the source of power, but he's invisible, except for the fact that you have this coin with his imprint on it. By looking at that, you can see an image of the invisible emperor. Well, says Paul, in the same way, God is invisible. And you may wonder what he is like, but you can see his likeness in Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God with skin on. And we need to take this very seriously. This claim that God is with us in and through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. The Gospels make it very clear that as people met Jesus, spoke with him, heard his teaching, saw his healings and miraculous acts, they realized that they were in the presence of God. But more than that, as Jesus faced rejection and pain, the sense that God was present was strangely even stronger. As they watched him make that fateful journey to Jerusalem, where he became the victim of the corrupt political and religious authorities. When they saw Jesus whipped and mocked and walking with a bruised and bloodied body to the hill of Calvary, and then enduring the most humiliating and ghastly death on a cross, when people saw that, they realized that somehow, mysteriously, amazingly, they were encountering 
God in a very powerful way. They saw God on the cross coming close to us in our suffering and pain, sharing in the brokenness that so often afflicts us, and finally facing even the reality of death. In all of this, Jesus was more than ever God with skin on. And so William Barclay could put it like this. In Jesus, we see perfectly and completely and finally and once for all revealed and demonstrated the attitude of God to humanity, the attitude of God to me. In Jesus, there is the full revelation of the mind and heart of God, and what a difference it makes to know that God is like that. And that's one of the great truths that Paul wants to communicate in Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the here and now flesh and blood person who conveys to us the true nature of God. And I think we need to get hold of that. One of the songs we just sang said, He lived to die. Well, okay, the crucifixion, his sacrifice on the cross is, of course, important. But please, let's stop jumping his life. Let's stop jumping the fact that he shared our hume and flesh and blood. Let's stop jumping the wonder that the word became flesh and lived among us. That is important in itself before we ever get to the cross. Let's stop saying that Jesus only came to die. He didn't. He came to live and then to die. And we miss something profound and important if we stop looking at the significance of Jesus and his earthly life and the fact that in him is embodied the reality of God. The Bible has plenty of examples of individuals, both men and women, who have been inspired by God. The Holy Spirit has come upon them, moved within them, given them a profound insight and wisdom as they've talked about God and acted in God's name. But Paul does not want to put Jesus in that category. He wants to give him a uniqueness. He wants to say that in a profound sense, the very identity of Jesus is derived directly from God. That he is the image of the invisible God. And notice how verse 15 carries on without interruption. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. No break in the sentence. No attempt to switch from saying, he's the image, and, and, and also, we can talk about him as did it. No, it just flows through as one sentence, because Paul wants us to realize that in Jesus, we have the fullness of God. And gradually, the church had to defend this fact. And it began to talk, in because it was in the Greek world by now, it began to talk of Jesus being of one substance, of the same substance as the Father. 
And if you've ever wondered what those strange phrases are in the Nicene Creed, the long creed that we sometimes say at communion, about being of one substance with the Father, it comes from the year 325. Long way back, isn't it? 325. And the Council of Nicaea, when the church got together and said, we have got to state in bold terms who Jesus is and what his identity is. And the church at that time was split over one Greek letter, one tiny Greek letter, iota. Some people said that Jesus was homo eusios, and others said he was homousios, no I. So you can imagine, can't you? People used to go for coffee after the service <laughs> in the fourth century, and they'd say to each other, are you a homousion, or are you a homousion? And I want you to do that this morning, you know, after the service. And if you find any homousions in the congregation, they've got to go. Because homoousios means of similar substance to God. Homousios, without the eye, means of the same substance. And that's the key that here in Jesus, it is God himself, the Son of God, come to dwell among us in the human flesh and blood of Jesus. And Paul wants to get that across quite clearly in Colossians, because in verses 15 to 20, you will notice that the word all, or everything, occurs eight times because Paul is trying to get across the fact that when he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the God he is talking about is the one whose power upholds and embraces everything that exists. We are not talking about some angelic being, some almost God being coming to us in Jesus. We are talking about God himself, the creator God, the sustaining God, the transforming God, coming to us in Jesus. And he puts those three points one after another. Verse 16, all things, all things have been created through him and for him, the God you see in Jesus. Verse 17, in him all things hold together, the God you see in Jesus. Verse 18, he will come to have first place in everything. The God you see in Jesus. So if we talk about Jesus as the image of God, or as the God with skin on, this is the God we are talking about. The God who is supreme over all things. And that's what makes it so wonderful that this infinite, all-powerful creator God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, allows the Son to leave the heavenly places and to come and share in our human flesh and blood. We need to spend time looking at, trying to take in the wonder of what that means for us. And we must then keep that tension between him as human 
and him as divine. Not someone representing the divine, but someone embodying the divine. And then, when we have taken in the significance of that, with Paul, we move on to the fact that he came in order to reconcile us to himself. God is not only with us, but he has come to reconcile us to himself. Verses 20 and 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of all your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. But notice this fleshly body is there again in the way that Paul describes the cross. He has reconciled you through the death of his fleshly body. Isn't it true that often we present the cross as though it is some kind of eternal, supernatural transaction. It's a little bit above the earth, as it were. It's something to do with what's going on in heaven between God and Jesus. And we're down here waiting for the result, which is that Jesus wins the victory and is able to take us back into the heavenly places. That's fine. There is something very deep, profound, hidden in the cross. The great theologian Jürgen Moltmann has some amazing passages in his book, The Crucified God, in which he tries to draw our attention to the fact that we've often talked about the suffering of Jesus, of the Son of God on the cross, the pain of the nails and the, and the spear, all the struggle and pain of trying to survive on those wooden beams. Yes, we've looked at all that, all the sense of receiving into himself, absorbing all the evil, the rejection, the hatred, all the sin of humanity going into his soul, as it were. Yes, but remember, at the same time, the father looks upon his son, suffering this terrible, terrible experience. The father feels the alienation of the son as the cloud and darkness of sin comes between them. And he feels the sense of loss and sorrow and agony as his son suffers there on the cross. And between them is the Holy Spirit connecting, maintaining the communion between father and son in this blackest, darkest, most horrible of moments. Yes, all of that is going on in the cross. But at the same time, it's his fleshly body that is being crucified and done to death on that cross. And we don't need to miss that because there's an element in which the cross is very much down to earth as well as up in heaven. It's something very powerful and visible about the crucifixion. It's often said that in evangelical churches where you've got a, a blank cross like the one you've got on your wall here, that we can't get away 
from the vividness and visibility of the cross entirely, because often it comes in through our hymns. You often find that the imagery of evangelical hymns is very, very vivid, because we need to be in, con in touch with that visibility, that physicality of the cross. And we need to realize that in that, there is something very powerful and something that conveys the atoning power of Jesus. Mervyn Stockwood, who was once Bishop of Southwark. Southwark's a great place, isn't it? Because that's where our new bishop's coming from. Um, but anyway, this is a former Bishop of Southwark, Mervyn Stockwood. During the war, Stockwood, who was a bachelor, um, was vicar of a parish in Bristol. And he said that during the bomb raids, lots of houses got destroyed, some people were killed, but also, occasionally, animals, pets, were thrown out onto the streets because they had nowhere to go. They'd lost their family, they'd lost their home, and he found a stray cat. And he said this stray cat was always hanging about his door, so in the end, he gave him a saucer of milk, and then he gave him a bit of food, and he said the cat became a great friend. And he said, being a lonely bachelor, it was good to have this little companion. Anyway, one day, Stockwood was out visiting. He came back to his home, and there, the cat was dying on his doorstep. Some local youths had stoned the cat almost to the point of death. And he said, I was distraught, and I didn't want to prolong the cat's suffering, but I was determined that this was going to be a lesson. So he gently gathered the cat up, placed him on a sheet on the kitchen table, and knowing who the lads were that had done it, he went and got them, and he rounded them up and said, you're coming with me. And he made them stand round the kitchen table and look at the suffering of the cat before it died. And he said it brought shame, and it brought guilt, and it brought tears, and it brought a sense of penitence to those lads for their folly. And Stockwood goes on to say there's something of that at work in the cross. Something of us seeing visibly, concretely in front of us what our sins have done to Jesus. Because what they've done to Jesus, they've done to God. Because in him, the fullness of God was dwelling bodily. And so there's a real sense again in which the flesh and blood of Jesus brings us to the very core of what God is wanting to do in reconciling us to himself. So this wonderful passage on which I could preach probably another six Sundays, you'll be glad to know I'm not coming, um, <laughs> teaches us that we need to hold on very firmly to the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. We need to hold on very firmly too to the divine identity of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, so we see just how amazing it is that God should choose to stoop down and come alongside us, knowing what he was going to suffer as the consequences of that choice, involving even the Holocaust of the cross, so that he might demonstrate his unfathomable love for us, 
His unflinching desire to free us from our sin and draw us into a right relationship with him. All of that was the cost that God himself bore as he gave himself to us in Jesus, gave himself to live among us in flesh and blood. So surely, as that great Good Friday hymn puts it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.